0: Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. Uh, this week, Tom, Trevor, and I will be talking through uh, our last episode on the Christological controversies of the 4th and 5th cent- centuries, culminating in the Acts of Chalcedon. Um, so today, we will basically just be talking through uh, how did the Church come to an agreement on this idea of the relationship between the two natures of Christ, and what was kind of the the formulation at the end at Chalcedon. And so we call this the, the Christological definition, because it's not, strictly speaking, a A creed, in the same way that the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creeds are creeds. It is a further elaboration on those, um, and so it is a sort of definition to give us more information, but not strictly speaking a creed. Um, so as I say, this is the last in these conversations, um, but, but I hope that you all have been enjoying them. Uh, I would encourage any listeners to also listen to my conversation with Jordan Wood on the whole mystery of Christ. Um, so Dr. Wood is uh, working on Maximus the Confessor and his interpretation of the Christological controversies um i also just recently noticed that we had a review on itunes um, and so i just wanted to thank uh, land lover christ follower um, who uh, gave us a nice comment on itunes Uh, this person says i was in search for a deeper understanding of christianity upon the first few episodes i listened to i felt complete happiness and the information and conversations i heard this podcast is a great way to keep the mind on christ and those who followed him Uh, but there's so much more that comes with uh with this and, and that's kind of where it ends. But we really appreciate uh, the, the comments, the reviews, um, and it's really nice to hear these words of encouragement. So thank you, Land Lover Christ follower, um, and all others uh, who have left us comments in the past. Um, please keep them coming. It helps people find the show, or at least that's what other podcasters say. Um, yeah, we will have one more episode coming with Benjamin Wheaton. We'll be recording new episodes. We're going to have Brad East on uh, to talk about the nature of scripture. Uh, I'll have a conversation with another Augustine scholar on some Augustine stuff. So we've got a lot of stuff in the works. Uh, so stay tuned, and we thank you for listening. So here's the conversation with Tom and Trevor. Chalcedon. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not Chalcedon. We're not talking about dinosaurs. Uh, <laughs> oh, Chalcedon.
1: Is that true? I can't say Chalcedon. Chalcedon. What about Chal- Chalcedon? Chalcedon?
2: would be very bad. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's.
2: I, I mean, I, again,
0: with all of these things, we're trying to speak a language that none of us speak on a regular basis. So I don't really get mad at anyone, and I know that it's hard. And actually, I'm the worst at doing a, 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 a American pronunciations. One that I realized that I like people would make fun of me for is some people say John Chrysostom. Um, and apparently that is closer to the Greek cadence, the proper cadence. But I always said John Chrysostom. Um, I just – I like when I say it, I feel like I sound like what I am, which is a Midwesterner who overpronounces some of his hard consonants. Chrysostom, um, soccer,
2: mom. Uh, but I, I, I get – Chrysostom and my classics professor always said Chrysostom.
0: Yeah, but apparently, people say "chrysostom" uh, in in a lot of cases. I but I don't, know, I don't
2: like
1: it. I don't like it. I like the other one.
0: I like. Chrysostom. So I'm not going to be hard on anyone who mispronounces it. My point was, I'm not going to be hard on anyone who mispronounces it. Um. So one thing that I wanted, so to kind of recap, right, we've done a couple of weeks on contour, on things that have led up to the Chalcedonian definition, um, the Acts of Chalcedon. So in 451. Uh, the, the church gathers together uh, in this place in Asia, Chalcedon, um, and they gather together to try to sort of settle this controversy over how do we speak about Christ? How do we speak about the fact that God became human, um, that, that somehow the word was made flesh, right? So how do we, how do we talk about the second person of the Trinity – uh, in a way that is fitting both for the humanity and for the divinity, right? Uh, so there's some some way that we have to acknowledge, we have to confess, we have to recognize that in one hu- one person, not one human person, in one person, uh, there was th- th- the fullness of divinity and the fullness of humanity. But it all gets sparked by Nestorius. The, the real controversy heats up because Nestorius says that they should change the name uh, theotokos uh, uh, from to Christotokos, this name for Mary. And I had mentioned this in the podcast and I couldn't find a source. Uh, but so here is an old uh, prayer that is from at least from the third century, so this 200s in Alexandria. Uh, and the prayer goes like this To your protection we flee, Holy Mother of God. Do not despise our prayers and our needs, but deliver us from all dangers, glorious and blessed Virgin. So What I'll say about that prayer is in Alexandria, in Egypt, for hundreds of years, the church has this uh, mention of the mother of God, the Theotokos, in their prayer. So the Alexandrians have been singing and speaking this way uh, for uh, for hundreds of years and then someone from Constantinople and an elite from another center uh, tells them that they can no longer use this phrase that they have been using in worship for hundreds of years and and to some extent I, I just want to reiterate how uh how sort of um inflammatory that would be and so i was i was actually thinking so i have had a sort of strange theological journey as you two will know well um and um i remember so like i sing to my son every night before he goes to sleep i sing him the doxology praise god from whom all blessings flow praise him all creatures here below praise him above you heavenly hosts praise father son and holy ghost um, he actually calls it his song. He thinks that it's it's just one that I wrote for him, which is kind of funny. But I remember when I was in very liberal theological circles, I one time went into a service where someone sang this, uh, praise God from whom all blessings f- flow, praise God all creatures here below, praise God above ye heavenly host, creator Christ and Holy Ghost. And I was like, what are you doing? Um, and I was I, – I, wait, stop, what, what is going on? And, and, I, and I was so mad. And then I realized I was at a gender inclusive church who wanted only gender inclusive language for God. And I was like, it just, it was so startling and kind of enraging. Cause like I, in my head, I'm just singing the song that I sing all the time. A song that I love so much that I sing to my, my son, to my son for three years, every night he go, you know, before he goes to bed, like, and long before. We used to sing it at Ambrose uh, all the time, too. You know, say, I just sang it all the time. Uh, but I was enraged. Why? Why would you take uh, take away something so precious, something that I knew by heart? Um, you know, so I so to, for, for people to understand what's at stake, like that's what's at stake, right? Someone comes along and says, no, you've always sang it this way. Not only is that not what you should say, but you're you are being damaging to God. Uh because you are you are saying something that's not true, you know, that that God shouldn't have genders, you know, is in the doxology case that I gave. Um and so, you know, so I I want to I, I bring that up just to kind of give a little flavor to why this causes because some people will will say this just seems like theological hair splitting and such, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin kind of thing. But I'll let you all respond to that, but that's, that's where I'll start.
1: That's a great thing to do because also I think if for some of our, some particular Protestant listeners, they might be like, who cares if Mary's the mother of God? And that's So that's the other thing is like, okay, I, you know, maybe from your modern day perspective, you see it that way, but yeah, giving an example of sort of how enraging it could be for someone to sort of correct your, your prayers or something in, in such a way. I think that's, yeah, right on the money.
2: You know, I, um, I, I think that's, you know, when you were telling that story, Chad, I couldn't help but think of an anecdote I heard. And I, I, because it just came into my head, I, I don't have time to look it up and get a source and get all the details. But I remember learning this uh, back, I think in school when we were talking about, Jerome and the Vulgate translation, how when he first when it was first published and circulated that there was some group of monks that rioted over his particular translation Uh, and when I say rioted, I mean they just started burning stuff to the ground, right? Like I'm talking they were very destructive Uh, and it was his translation from the book of Jonah for the, I mean for those of you guys who are familiar with the book of Jonah at the end of The book, he's sitting under the scorching sun and he's upset because God has spared the Ninevites, which is the group that he went to go preach to, and they repented and he didn't want them to repent. So he's kind of like, he's kind of being bitter and he's just saying, Fine, God. He's kind of pouting. I'm going to sit here. And then this plant grows up to provide him shade. And I don't remember exactly how. Jerome translated the word for that plant. I think it was gourd or something like that. But whatever word he used was different from the word that the older Latin texts had used. And it inspired a riot because (laughs) of the choice to use a different term in that context, which I think just kind of goes to your point, which is just how upsetting it is when we're used to something being a certain way. And all of a sudden, it you know it's challenged in some sense. Last night I was uh, teaching on when like on our my Wednesday night study at my church, and you know it's online and and we give our everybody an opportunity to write in with questions, and then me and uh, Tucker, our pastor, get together and answer the questions. Well, the top question, most voted up, you know, I, I made the mistake, and Trevor, you're gonna love this. Uh, <laughs> I got off on some tangent where I talked about Tolkien and Lewis and Star Wars and things that I obsess about. And guess what I happened to throw in? Harry Potter. Oh. So so I got a question asking how that could square with my faith, which I'm actually looking forward to answering the question. But I just know, I remember right before I threw that, because I'm throwing out all these things that people like Lord, like, like nerdist uh, (laughs) obsessions, movies and games and video games, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I happened to throw in Harry Potter and that right before I did it, I thought, should I throw this out there? (laughs) Um, Things have changed because 25 years ago it would have been absolutely like, no, don't do it. Now. Most Christians I think are okay with it, but you still have that in people's minds. So what's happening is people who are used to thinking of something a certain way, it 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 riles them up, you know, because because to challenge this thing that has just been accepted, even you know regardless of the merits of it, is stressful and frustrating,
1: right? Yeah, I think that's certainly part of it. But then when you also add the intimacy of prayer, it's like it would be like someone saying you can't use this name for your spouse anymore. I'd be like, "What?" who are you to tell me? Like, <laughs> like, cause it's like, you're talking to God and it's like, and I don't know. So yeah, it's, it's a combo. It's like a paradigm shift frustration. Plus um, you're taking away sort of an intimate language, which would be frustrating
0: and the the other thing that and this will be pointed out too if you know depending on whose sort of history of the time period you're reading the other thing that's at play here and i'll go again at another level i use the phrase elite uh as a, as kind of a joke but right now you know in america we have this whole thing about elites uh elites in dc versus you know the regular people Um, and so one thing that's happening though, there are rival centers of power, uh, around the Mediterranean. So, uh, if, if you all recall, uh, you know, I mean, I know you guys know this, but like, you know, most of us think, especially in the West of Rome, right? Rome is the center of Roman Catholicism. Uh, but in, and, but this will matter too, in terms of how the church kind of, uh, deals with the fallout of the Calcedonian controversy, which is to say, there not only was there a center in Rome, but there was a center in Antioch, uh, the first place the term Christ uh, uh, Christian was used. Uh, there was a center in uh, in Alexandria, which is where so the the term Theotokos was the term that was used. In Alexandria, in Egypt. Uh, and that was one center of Christianity. By Alexandrian tradition, Mark, uh, the the writer of the Gospel of Mark, or at least someone connected to him. I mean, I know there's disputes over who wrote what, but the the connection to that Mark uh, is, is it is said that he was the founder of the church in Alexandria. So there is a kind of apostolic Origin for the church in Alexandria. So they took themselves to be an important center of Christianity. Antioch was an important center of Christianity. Jerusalem, a center of Christianity. Rome, a center of Christianity. And then Constantine says, I'm going to make Constantinople a, sen- a center of Christianity. It's the upstart. Um, and so here's Nestorius in the upstart center preaching this prayer, trying to say, hey, look, we now determine uh, for all Christians how we're going to speak. Um and and so the the Alexandrians rise up and they're like, hey, come on, uh, we've been worshiping here this way since John Mark, uh, since and you know there's some tradition that that John Mark actually provided the room for the Lord's prayer or for the Lord's supper, um, and and that was his family and there's some interesting uh history around John Mark and and Alex or Mark and Alexandria, um, uh, some people use the phrase John Mark, but that's another thing. Uh, but, uh, yeah, anyway,
2: um, you know, I, I think what you just described, Chad really harkens back to stuff that we talked about early in our podcast, way back when the Gnostics, when we were covering kind <clears> of <throat> the Gnostic heresies, because one of the arguments that was constantly being brought up in opposition to the Gnostics was, to look at these centers of power that you just referenced, for lack of a better term, I mean, Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem, not Constantinople, because obviously Constantine hadn't, you know, come to power yet, but to look at these and and the, the bishops of these various places all put forward the same argument. They all said, look, we were started by apostles. We have an unbroken line of apostolic authority and succession and we all agree that this Gnostic teaching is bad. And so just bringing in Constantinople now is this like upstart. I like that phrase. It's kind of a challenge. Like the, the Alexandrians can say, no, no, no. We're doing it the way it's supposed to have been done, right? Uh, by the way, not to change subjects real quick, but to get back to something Trevor said a bit ago about the Theotokos and about how some Protestants, depending on their tradition, may not really care um, because it deals with Mary, and and that would be something that we're probably just not as concerned about. One thing I'd point out is that the term Theotokos is more than just about Mary. It really is about the nature of Jesus while in the womb. It's really speaking to his nature. And so, if you so when Nestorius calls G or Mary the the Christotokos, saying that she was the Christ bearer but not the God bearer, he's essentially saying that in her womb. Jesus was something else than what we tend to think of and wasn't really God in the womb, but in some sense became God later, so to speak, I think. At least I think that's kind of what he's implying by it. And I also want to throw out there because we haven't talked much about it. And probably I don't know that we will. But 20 years before Chalcedon, you had the Council of Ephesus dealing with that particular heresy and they condemned the, the term... Christotokos. I don't think they condemned the term. The term in some sense is probably true, but they condemned this teaching that Theotokos is wrong, right? To teach that Theotokos is bad is heresy, is what they what they said it, at Ephesus. So 20 years before Chalcedon, this is already in play, and they condemned that, but then they failed to go further and give a precise definition of what the nature of Christ is, right? So anyway, just to fill that in.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the metaphysical implications are certainly important whether or not you say prayers to Mary or not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and that's – and actually even in my example where you take out the gendered language for God, I mean the the criticism which I find – uh, compelling, why we should say father and son is because it seems to make God impersonal. It's like an impersonal force. Um, And so using these names and using these pronouns and, you know, is, is trying to, it's it, at least to some extent, it's intended to communicate sort of the, the the personhood of God. Like God is not just some impersonal force, right? Christians have always believed that God in some sense uh, has, you know, A a personal connection to us Um, and it's not just um, or and some will say it sounds even modalist right just sounds like the modes of God Um, but it's a it's a it is a deeply theological question what should one do um, uh, with how we speak about God which is also still the controversy here how should we speak about the God man Um, and so uh, we get the uh, you know we get this um, settlement uh, at uh chalcedon and the first thing that they do and the uh in the sort of the acts of the of the um and in when they like when they make their kind of final declaration, what is our agreement here? They say we the first thing, the most important thing is they say, look, we affirm Nicaea. So all we're doing here is giving a further clarification to what we've already said at Nicaea. We've talked about that a little bit. And then they say, following then the Holy Fathers, we all confess in harmony, one and the same son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The same one, perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, truly God and truly man, right? So, you know, these are phrases that uh, many of us will be familiar with. Fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man, something like that. Uh, Perfect, meaning complete, total, um, that, that kind of thing, right? Perfect in divinity, perfect in humanity, of a rational soul and a body right so you can you know you can uh, parse each one of these words to some extent right so we started back with apollinaris who didn't think that there was a a mind uh, uh that that you know that the divine mind inhabited the soul and a body the tripartite form so they're saying no rational uh soul and body as if to say apollinaris your you know your definition doesn't work um and then they go on of one being with the Father as regards as divinity or consubstantial uh, with uh, with uh, with God consubstantial with us in humanity like us in all respects except sin, um, yeah. Uh, do, um, should I just read the whole thing? I guess or yeah, sure. yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. keep going. Yeah. This, is uh, something
0: like-
2: everybody should, this is something everybody should know. Yeah.
0: So and like don't
2: us and along at, at home. <laughs> yeah we're on the car in the car while driving
0: <laughs> so like us in all respects except sin right so this is huge so you know he is, and actually even the perfect in respect to humanity like it's interesting to think about the uh you know christ as the uh the perfect human uh so all of you know when we think about humanity we think about christ not about us um, like we are the imperfect humanity. He is the perfect humanity. Uh, so he is the standard. He's the form. He's the exemplar. Begotten before the ages from the Father in divinity and in the last days, the same one for us and for our salvation born from Mary, the virgin, theotokos, God bearer in humanity, one and the same. Right. So one is really important here. Unity, one and the same Christ, son, Lord, only begotten. And then here is a really controversial phrase which we should go back to, but acknowledged in two natures uh, without – and then these these are pretty important phrases too. Acknowledged in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation, right? So these are kind of standard things. Whatever we say about Christ, uh, we mean that his humanity and his divinity were not mixed together. They don't change. Uh, they're not divided, uh, and nor are they separated. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away because of the union, right? So the hypostatic union, but rather the distinctive character of each nature being preserved, um, and each coming together in one person and a single uh being. And obviously that's the-,
1: the phrase we need to come back to. Mine, Mine <laughs> renders it hypostasis, by the way, but... Yeah, well, that's yeah,
0: that's the hypostatic union. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he is not divided or separated into two persons. One and the same Son, only begotten God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets of old and the Lord Jesus Christ taught us about Him, and the Creed of the Fathers handed down to us. Right. So again, the Creed handed down. We're kind of uh, affirming that this is long held. So, so that is the Chalcedonian. Settlement. And I have uh, hinted at already once, but we'll get to this more, that what, (laughs) as with a lot of these things, it almost causes as much controversy as it settles. Um, So some people will say that the Reformation is when Christianity seems to break off into factions. Um, You know, at the very least, you want to go back here to the fifth century, because this is where we get the different churches uh, that like of the Far East, so churches in Syria, Babylon, Iraq um, and actually the Egyptian Church breaks off too, um eventually. Is that like um, topic? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay. Chad, can but, you do me a favor here? Actually, yeah. right here. Um, just because you're talking about these splintering offs at this point of all these various Eastern churches, um, they're all splintering because of the definition of Chalcedon, correct? Like that. More or less, it, yeah. More or less. Yes, yeah. Um, so I was just in a conversation with a friend the other day, and I brought up, because uh, somebody was asking what we were doing on our podcast, and I said, well, we're talking about the definition of Chalcedon, and we're talking about Nestorianism and the, mon- the monophysite heresies, right? And immediately one of my friends, who is familiar with the churches in the East, says, uh, "Miaphysite, please, yeah. Miaphysite. Could you explain the distinction... Me and this is I'm not asking for the audience. I'm asking for myself, <laughs> meophysite, monophysite, and why they cling to that meoph because cause none of them acknowledge the phrase monophysite, correct? Right. Now I do uh, know what i do know what actually- mono- Oh, go ahead.
0: I think, there is, I think there is one of the churches of the East that might embrace the term monophysite, monophysite or monophysite. Uh, but yes, yeah, the, I don't the know Coptic, I yeah, but the Coptic church definitely does call themselves Miophysite. Um and that and it, it is a nod to saying that we're not saying that there is only uh, one sort of um, one
2: nature. Uh, Which is but, what monophysite means. It means yeah. one nature. So, like as opposed to the dual nature that appears in the Council of Chalcedon, where there's God and man united in one person, the to, to say monophysite is to say no, there's not a distinct God and man nature. There's only one nature. And both Eutyches and Apollinaris had different versions of this, and what we talked about the last couple of weeks. But sorry, go ahead, Chad. They say there's so, not he- one nature, but
0: yeah, so here, in Greek, "phusis" means nature. So this is uh, Robert Wilkin, uh, a sort of esteemed uh, uh, patrologist, uh, uh, esteemed scholar of the early church. He says this. Uh, me, uh, so the proper term for the non-Chalcedonians is miophysites, though in past historical writings, monophysite has been widely used. Whatever the term, the non-Chalcedonians did not believe that Christ had only a divine nature. Like the Chalcedonians, they held that he was fully human as well as fully divine, but they thought that the expression two natures suggested that the divine Logos and the man Christ were two distinct persons, and for that reason they rejected Chalcedon. Uh, so that's how Wilkin settles it. It doesn't actually explain why Mia is preferred to, preferred to Monophysite. I think what Wilkin would imply is that to some extent it's it Monophysite feels like um, – a slur <laughs> um and so they would prefer mia i think i have heard some people say that mia feels like um well the, so the phrase that the the coptic church preferred was out of two natures um so there's this uh, a oneness to him um but it's acknowledged out of two natures rather than in two natures so actually
2: so go ahead I was just going to ask, what does the prefix Mia mean again? Well, it's one. Oh, it's it's, the same thing as mono for the
0: most part. Yeah, yeah. Cool,
2: Uh, cool,
0: cool. Well, I mean, I guess if
2: you... Your your explanation makes total sense then, right? I mean, because it's like, I can, I mean, I guess I'm not thinking off the top of my head or I can't think of anything off the top of my head. But there are tons of things that if we use a certain phrase, oh, I just thought of it. Uh, I love how the Reformed will refer to Arminians or Wesleyans or people who just don't embrace a Reformed soteriology. They'll call them (laughs) (laughs) semi-Pelagians. And what I love about that, I remember walking with Dr. Corten's uh, at Boise State years ago, and I was reformed at the time, and I called him a semi-Pelagian, and he goes, "You know, Tom, I'm a Catholic," and he goes, "And we hate Pelagius too."
1: <laughs> and he goes,
2: and because, and, and I was like, "Oh," and he's like, "Yeah," he's like, "He's like, I'm not just embracing some doctrine called semi-Pelagianism. That's offensive." <laughs> and I realized because the the reason I used it is I remember reading books at the time. Where people were like, oh, it's not offensive, it's just what it, it's what it is. It's semi-pelagianism. And uh, no, it's offensive. And it's particularly using a phrase that we know will be offensive when you can use some other. Now, of course, being Catholic, Dr. Cortens wouldn't really want to be call himself an Arminian or a Wesleyan either, because those are Protestants. But they have, you know, I mean, they have their own, you know, version of it, so to speak. But it, but yeah, we we can find a phrase. That even though you might properly call an Arminian view semi-Pelagian, like there might be some way you can say, well, there's a little bit. It's kind of a little Pelagian. It's still offensive. Right. Right.
0: Yeah, well, and so one phrase, though, that that also is a dispute in Chalcedon, and I'm actually not clear how – how to make sense of what why this preposition makes such a big difference but here here we go so we're talking about this distinction among the churches so you, you will find people um, you know the Catholic Church uh, the Roman Catholic Church all the Eastern Orthodox churches so Greek Orthodox uh, Russian Orthodox uh, Ukrainian Orthodox, uh, all the, the, the sort of you know typical Amer- uh, Orthodox church in America, all these sorts of things, they will call themselves Chalcedonians, right? So they accept this settlement as the right way to think about this. But there are non-Chalcedonians. And so non-Chalcedonians tend to come, like I say, from uh, uh, the, the Coptic church, uh, the um, – so we sometimes call it the Syriac church, the church of the east. Um, so these are churches that are in like the modern-day Middle East – uh, t- tend to be non-Chalcedonians. Again, you have to be careful because there are uh, like there's one in uh, Lebanon that has made peace with Rome and they're like Eastern, right, Byzantine uh, Catholic. And, you know, there are there are you know, there are variations almost to all of this. Um, but by and large, they're non-Chalcedonians. They reject this definition. Um, but it's interesting that uh, Cyril is from Egypt and if you ask a Catholic or an, or, uh, an Eastern Orthodox, they'll say Cyril is Orthodox, but the church from whence Cyril comes now um, is non-Calcedonian. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the the Cyrilians, uh, like his people, they don't like what what was called what was what was intended to favor Cyril in some mm. sense. <laughs> yeah. Um so you know here's here's you know just for a little bit more confusion, right? Um if you go to a Coptic church, church today, Cyril saint, um, you know, but they say we're non-Chalcedonians. Well, wait a minute. I thought Chal- Chalcedon sent a favor uh Cyril. Well, not in their mind. Um and yeah. why is this the case? Well, it goes down to this phrase uh, uh, so in, in the kind of the middle of the Acts, it says uh, the virgin, theotokos, and humanity, uh, one, the same Christ, son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures. So as far as I can tell, the so the Nestorian position was, was in two natures. The Antiochians preferred in two natures, um, so, which seemed to preserve the two-ness, um, acknowledged in two natures. As far as I can tell, the Ceruleans, the Coptic Church, the miaphysites they wanted to say, out of two natures, ek, um, which seemed to say, it's one from two. <laughs> um, so there's sort of a... I think, as far as I could tell, it acknowledged a kind of unity in the two. And that's maybe... I mean, so to some extent, maybe that's the mia. Uh, is like somehow that c- comes kind of it, it at least to them it says, hey, remember, we actually prefer this one out of two natures. Um that's the best I can do. Uh but that that is an interesting part of this. We start talking about the splits. Uh cops, Ceruleans, non-Calcedonians.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny like... how how important prepositions can be to people, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: I mean in in and out of are so clearly different but I still don't know okay if we acknowledge out
2: of two natures Christ or we acknowledge nature yeah. I don't know I like I do agree in and out of in many contexts is concretely very clearly are two very clearly different terms and can be concretely expressed but when you're talking about in or out of two natures it I don't see actually because of the the substance that's in question I don't really see the distinction. Like in other words I guess I don't know what concretely is being said.
1: Yeah, it's I'm it's hard for my mind to chew on as well. Um I feel like I need to, we need like a really deep study on the use of the word physis in this time period because the nature part Every time I, I keep putting my contemporary philosopher, my knowledge of metaphysics hat on, even when I dig back as far as I can dig back, which is pretty much Aquinas' version of Aristotle, and I try to picture that version of the word nature, I'm like I'm just left confused because about the debate between the Meophysites. Because I'm like, You're you meophysites are that's still two natures there. I don't I don't know what how you're still getting I don't know how you're getting a human being and a divine being and yet you've got Christ in one nature. I'm I'm still that baffles me and makes me think that Physis had a different usage, obviously, uh, which it probably obviously yeah. did. And I'm so yeah, can you say something to that
0: so real quick this is a funny footnote in an older version of the acts of chalcedon uh this one was produced in the library of christian classics let's see uh this one was from uh 1954 uh it has a footnote on this uh where where we where i just read into natures it has a funny little footnote here the correct reading is in though Older texts of the Acts often have of ek. <laughs> uh, of the four following phrases, adverbs in Greeks, the first two assert the permanence, and the last two the inseparability of the natures. In Greek, uh, well, then it goes on to say something else about monogenes. Uh, but but they even footnote that within the Acts itself, some of them produced went with ek, and some of them produced went within. Um, so it's not even clear. It's not even hundred percent clear what was the intended preposition um in the uh in the original chalcedonian settlement
1: wow yeah and so that makes it which which what
0: that suggests to me is that in fact they didn't have a clear idea of why those two should be so substantively different um but I, I have a good explanation for nature if you want that. You want to tell yeah. – dis- Well, because
1: I think that will help with the preposition thing. I mean at least so, – Then I could get my mind on what's being in and out of. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So Robert Wilkin again, uh, he says, um, although the dispute had centered on the term theotokos, the next phase, it focused on the term nature, to your point. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the Alexandrians, for the Cyrilians. Uh, nature designated a specific entity as the name Samuel refers to an individual person named Samuel. Hence the Alexandrians could say that Christ was one nature of God, the word incarnate. So for them, one nature seemed to mean one person.
1: <laughs> um, okay. Uh, Which comes back uh, to the
2: confusion word. between the phrase hypostasis and Usus, right? I mean, or Usios, right? I mean, right. They, they're confused because they're using these phrases interchangeably. And they, I, here's my, like, just, so you know, and I'm not the scholar on it. I want to let you finish reading that. But my suspicion is, Trevor, that we don't have a clear definition
1: of how these phrases are being used. Well, my, they're
2: not, I, I, I don't think
1: they have one. That, that's my suspicion is that they're talking past each other. Keep going. Yeah. yeah
0: well so uh, hence uh, yeah nature meant the concrete person the syrians that is the nestorians theodore uh, you know all them used the term nature to mean a characteristic that belonged to a person such as brown hair blue eyes traits that individual shares with other person hence they said christ had two natures one divine and one human the difference in the understanding of the term nature would foil efforts to preserve unity. So almost exactly or not opposite, but you know, very distinct. Yeah. um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. This is like, this makes perfect sense then because they basically both think they're affirming one person using their word physis, which is the important part. And they both affirm divinity, which for our purposes is also important. And other than like, Polinaris, and they
2: build a term humanity.
1: Yeah, I was about to say, uh, yeah, that that's where that you know the humanity part. I'm not sure. It sounds like the Mephizites want to say something like something about the human. I mean, obviously there was a human there, but but obviously they they are sort of affirming a new. Maybe like a new thing, a third thing. I mean, at least <laughs> in terms of the metaphysics, that's kind of how it sounds. But, uh, but other than that, it's like you do get really, really two important parts of agreement here. Um, and then the humanity bit is, I guess, typically important for soteriological reasons, right? Um, what, what must is assumed is saved. So, uh, so that I don't know that this is, yeah. It does it does make it a really fine-grained issue but it does sound like on that word physis they talked past each other a little bit um at least as far as that sort of scholars take suggests um
0: i mean it's funny when i like you know we, we one of the things that we keep doing is who do we side with in all of this i haven't i mean it, it I, I just i do still think the antiochians just seem more precise um and like when i hear the word nature and even when i hear the word physis i don't think of a specific instantiation even in greek like i just i think more along the antiochian side it's always weird to me that physis the nature is the concrete individual like that's that's just as I'm like, well that's a that's a weird thing to say. It
2: is, I, for, so it's a weird use
1: of the word physis for sure. I so you know, I don't know the Greek obviously that well. But and I get your intuition. But I have noticed that when I explain the trinity to people, which to me is like I have an understanding of it and like so in my head I'm like it's very clear and I try to like explain it and sort of and I and I subscribe to a very um, like social model of the Trinity as it's sometimes called really emphasizes the fact that there literally are three persons you know um, three centers of consciousness or something like that, is the phrase I would use but whenever I'm trying to explain it and I even say that people do get tripped up because when they hear being all of the beings they've ever interact with are one person beings and so it's there is like a i would call it like folk metaphysic intuition that maybe wants to attach being to personhood in a very direct way like anytime you have a being you just have a person you have one person that's it and then you know i try to like give them like the three-headed dog example and i try to i try to do the best i can but it it is hard but but being a philosopher i'm like well it doesn't imply a contradiction so it's metaphysically possible and here i am like you know so i'm off the races i don't really care whether i can like perfectly picture it or not um which is something you get used to as a philosopher but then <laughs> that doesn't quite work with with lay people and so yeah i i can actually see i'm just saying i can i can see the use uh, at least i can or i can see like the folk metaphysical intuition behind wanting physis to be like a person even though I, i i don't get it myself i'm i'm very much on the other side i i don't think i'm like yeah. oh yeah i just think of oh. like a a basically a, a bundle of essential properties for I, I would
2: agree i totally agree with you on that trevor i do tend to think of the word being as slightly different from nature and i would stick being more with like usios whereas physis is more like necessary in my mind at least the way i've thought of it and i i can't pull examples out right now of stuff i have read i'm sure like i said that people obviously use them in different ways in in ancient greece but i always think of it more as uh basically essential condition or uh uh necessary and sufficient uh features i guess or yeah uh, qualities or attributes right like the nature of water is and then you talk about its 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 attributes. That's its nature. Uh, yeah. Whereas if I'm talking about the essence or the sorry the being of somebody, I think of uh, utios. Right is kind of right. the way is the term I would. Again, I mean, Which I obviously, obviously here we have. I'm the, not good enough at Greek to split hairs on these things.
1: So. Yeah. Like metaphysically, you know, really all we're talking about is form versus something that a particular that instantiates yeah. Yeah. a form. Yeah, and. And they're it seems pumped.
0: like the Cyrilians are saying that the particular is also called a nature. <laughs> um, right. And the uh, Antiochens are saying the particular, well, they would say it's a prosopon.
1: Yeah. Hmm. That's person, right? I don't remember. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Huh.
0: And, and so, yeah, it does seem like they're di- directly talking past each other. Um and and they like so he, this is like uh if 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 I don't know what kinds of real scholars listen to this, but it's basically in fashion. <laughs> don't
2: uh, take that personally, people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, like I don't you know, like Mark Del Cogli, True. I don't know. Like if there's some if there's some like big wig in the field. You're, you're
1: uh,
2: big he, in the field. Totally yeah,
1: people is. who get he, he, paid to do it rather than yes. happy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: I don't I yeah, I don't know if there's some like, yeah, you know, ch- endowed chair somewhere who would, you know, excoriate me for this. I get the intuition that the Antiochians sort of have a better education. Um, And sort of have a more like in in the sense that they like, I mean, I know for sure that Theodoret like really heavily relies on his platonic sources and other things. They have they seem to have a better command of rhetoric in certain ways. Uh, They they just seem to have been more uh, thoroughly and precisely educated. Um,
2: yeah. Yeah. Uh, you keep bringing up. i ha- I am assuming that our listeners will get confused on this because I actually keep getting confused on it. Which group are the Antiochines? Like what do they? what do they de- what do they defend?
0: So the yeah, the Antiochines are the ones like so the the sort of the standard uh, names that are associated with the Antiochines are Theodore of Tarsus, Theodore of Mopsuestia, Nestorius, and Theodor de Cyrus. Um, all of them, at one time, seem to overemphasize the duality um, of of Christ. Seem to s- like really want to press the separation, um, and they were always concerned that the Alexandrians from Apollinar. Well, and Apollinaris is an exalian, exali- Alexandrian, but they 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 seem to be concerned that Apollinaris Cyril, uh, uh, and later Eutyches. Um, and Dioscorus is another one. They seem to be worried that these guys so pressed the unity, uh, that they're that that, that either it became all like and it sort of became all divine,
2: there was no humanity. Um, you know, the second group, the group you've referred to as Alexandrians, yeah. So, is there a term you're using for those who embrace the definition of Chalcedon? Well, Antiochians, Alexandrians.
0: Well, so I mean mostly the ones who accept the Chalcedonian definition are typically now just called either they're, they're Chalcedonians or pro Chalcedonians. Um, Yeah. um, Something like that.
2: Meophysites or whatever.
0: Via the Meophysites or the Syriac church or these sorts of things, they became non Chalcedonians Um, and, and they, they rejected the, the settlement. So all, all that is a way of saying, It's interesting that, like, I feel like a lot of scholars that I read nowadays tend to side with the Alexandrians, like, tend to say, like, they had, they had a better uh, and more interesting metaphysics. Uh, They, like, that's, you know, they, they, like, and that's the side that, that has more references to deification, more references to the, this kind of, like, almost more mystical tradition. Um, And... Uh, yeah. But it's it's just interesting, like they get the they seem to win the day for a lot of Chalcedonians, for later theologians, they tend to think uh, you know, they that, that that's this the, the Alexandrians, you know, it's Origen was Alexandrian as well, long before these controversies. Um but origin's super popular right now, right? Um and and people love origin and but people tend to dog on the Antiochians because they're sort of sticklers, um and they're sort of sticklers for precision. They're sort of sticklers for, uh, you know, not over, uh, uh sort of overemphasizing the allegorical at the uh, expense of the historical. They're they're precise about their language. They're worried about making sure that we don't, you know, because kata hypostasin uh, 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 the hypostatic union is actually a term given by a person who's declared a heretic uh right apollinaris and so they're really worried they're like hey we shouldn't use terms that heretics use um <laughs> and so like i don't know so it's funny like i don't now i'm saying all these things but i i don't know like there's there's a part of me my reflex actually though is still like i'm actually kind of uh i don't know I have I feel like sometimes I have more in common with the Antiochians uh, than I do with the Alexandrians.
1: Hmm. Huh. Interesting.
2: Now, I forget who was the was it Cyril? Who was the big guy fighting against Nestorius? Yes. So Cyril was Cyril. Yeah. Or Cyril, yeah sorry. Cyril. Would he he would have been an Alexandrian? Yeah. yeah OK. OK. So, so when you describe the Alexandrians, that would include guys whose perception would be a little closer to the definition of Chalcedon as well as the Neophysites, right? So it's like a combination of both, right? Right. So Alexandrians, when you say that they're less precise, they really are. Like there, there's a broader, um, uh, I don't know, Venn diagram that surrounds the Alexandrians and their theological or Christological positions than there is the... Antiochians.
0: Yeah. So like, well, like for, as a, for instance, we're going to have Jordan Wood, uh, an episode with him that probably will air before this conversation. Uh, he wrote on Maximus, the confessor. Uh, and Maximus is a later pro-Chalcedonian, um, someone who wants to defend Chalcedon, but who, you know, who uh, is kind of in this sort of line of um, this sort of surreal, uh, you know, so Maximus the confessor is sort of in, you know, he's pro-Chalcedonian but he still likes Cis- Cyril, um, you know. He's like he's like I'm on this like trajectory that like uh, is is fully orthodox, um, but and really likes Cyril and really likes elements of Origenism, um, although he rejects some origin. Um, but yeah, uh, he he sort of. Um, you know, there's that's kind of like that's really uh, that's like cutting edge uh, historical theology <laughs> uh, is like they're like, oh, we like like these people that want to take some of the interesting stuff from the Alexandrians and Origen and Cyril. But we're still pro Um And so we're going to, you know, and we're going to do the mystical thing and we're going to talk about theosis and we're going to talk about divinization and these sorts of things. Um, that's like, and that's David Bentley Hart, right? That's kind of his trajectory as well.
2: Hmm.
1: I I will say, I think I've now been convinced that Apollinaris, Apollinaris himself, his actual specific uh, formulation, doesn't seem compatible with what ended up being, orthodoxy. However, I do think that Neo Apollinarian view still fits even what we just read here today. Um, but it is definitely Neo. It's not quite literally his view. But I could see how you could get, st- how you still get a fully human person. You still get a fully divine uh, nature present. And you still get one person. But but then again, I don't know. It's one of those things where, I think this is one of those metaphysical uh, debates where it's basically just intuition pumping at this point because the truth is it's like, well what happens if you take a divine being and you put them into a human body and they're what's they're what becomes the soul of that human person. It's like, D- uh? <laughs> it's like <laughs> I don't know <laughs> uh, I mean, first of all we've got we've got the sample size of one if if that's what happened uh for, you know furthermore but then also it's like the the whole th- jiving this with our understanding of like current dualism too which i i think would be really interesting though not the point of this podcast but like <laughs> how do we talk about the brain interacting with uh you know an immaterial self and and what that would be and talking about like like i would love someone to do like a david chalmer's style um explanation of conscious dualism consciousness dualism explaining how we get christ in there i mean that that's what really interests me about this obviously being the philosopher but i'm but it makes me think that there's actually um even though it's like settled it's like here we've got our formulation there's probably like hundreds of metaphysics that could all still fit this definition, and you could pro- you could get even more nitty gritty. And I'm glad that we've like sort of stopped. <laughs> like, it's like we need to stop somewhere because this. I feel like this could just keep going. You could keep, as philosophers and theologians do. You could just keep tearing it apart, and getting even smaller de- um, particular definitions. And I I just think it's it's interesting that. Um, we get to see snapshots of that in history, like versions of that kind of going on, though, as we've just discussed, maybe they weren't too precise. They were probably weren't that precise enough, maybe in in some ways, since they ended up talking past each other. But yeah, very interesting. It's it's, it's,
0: it's kind of amazing. They're talking past each other, speaking the same language. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, you know, it's all it's almost like when I went, you know, like I, I got to go to Scotland and like sometimes I would meet people I like. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. You you
2: you are speaking English supposedly. Um, <laughs> well, but think about some of our current debates culturally, race, yes. gender. Yeah. I mean you name it, we're all using different definitions for things and we're using them um what's oh gosh, dogmatically, right? Like yeah. unyielding, yeah. not willing to stipulate definitions in conversations to try to get to the hearts of matters and things like that. You know what I mean? So it's, it makes sense to me that culturally that is going to happen,
1: right? I have to shout out, because I feel like this term would just fit what you're saying so well. I have to shout out Eric Raton from Oklahoma State University, one of my old professors. He taught, he teaches Phil religion there still. Um, He has a good book on universalism actually. And he has a book that replies to Richard Dawkins called His God Delusion. Cool, cool philosopher, but also he had this phrase that he taught us called essentially contested concept, which I think is something he sort of invented. I'm pretty sure. Maybe he got it from someone else. I'm not. But he talked about this culturally essentially contested concepts. And religion was his example. He used this in Phil Religion, where literally some people can hear the word religion and all they hear is negative things. Like all their associations with that concept are negative and then some people hear the term religion and it's this very beautiful and it's an uplifting concept. Um, and he I remember the example he gave us. He's like, Imagine if you were in a society where the word sex just meant rape to some people, and to other people meant like this loving act to other people. He goes, Of course they would then fight about sex. <laughs> like he goes, That's where we're at with religion right now. And I've now I've thought about this. So much since he gave me that example of like other concepts in our society that are essentially contested in such a way where really that is what's that's what's going on. Um But yeah, so it doesn't surprise me that it's not new, that it was ha- it's been happening for a long time.
2: That's a really good analysis. I just think in general of what's happening in our culture, because I think that's where everything is. Mm-hmm. It's like you identify almost any hot button topic and there's going to be a phrase or a term that is going to mean two radically different things to different people on the aisle, you know? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Well, yeah, it's hard not to want to go into any number of, of like things about (laughs) this, but
1: (laughs) I could, I could give like a personal example. Stir in the pot. pot. I mean, I (laughs) remember like hearing the word socialist just meant something. So like, like kind of evil or like dumb. It was more like not mm. evil. It was more like dumb. It was just more like, oh, those are stupid people who like have this crazy view. And like anything free market, anything laissez-faire, I just had this positive association in my mind because that was the house I grew up in. And I had to like literally train myself out of that. I'm now in a more like almost like I would call it dead neutral space. Like neither term means much to me anymore. It's like they're almost pure utility. I'm just like I don't know. Markets work here. They don't work here. Whatever. I just, you know, I'm sort of getting past my own economic views. But I just, I. but it used to be very charged. Like both words used to be charged, both in positive and negative ways. And, like, it took, like, literal training of my brain to, like, get out of that. But I had to get into that mode, the the philosophy mode, as I call it, where I'm just like, okay, I'll play with an idea. I'll think of this idea without attachment to it. And I'm not sure, yeah, not, I don't know if everyone uh, has the instinct to do that, whereas now that's actually my like my instinct. I hear about an idea and I just, I put it in like a safe place where I'm trying to avoid my emotions. But, but yeah, it's very, it's very difficult. Um, it takes conscious effort because your, your unconscious self wants to just hit that emotional button immediately. And it's just like, nope, bad. Like we associate bad with that or good with that. And. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, I had, I, I was talking, I think actually, I feel like I've learned that from you, Trevor, a little bit, but definitely from, you know, continuing to talk with philosophers, Uh, because like, you know, a few years ago, I was talking to my pastor friend about, uh and about the, I think it was about the defund the police thing. And that was like a phrase and that annoyed me. The phrase annoys me, it annoyed me at first, but then I realized I was like, you know, you do, you know, you need to say, okay, that's a slogan. And I'm not sure, you know, the slogan may not literally uh, mean what they say. They usually, you know, it means like reduce the budget or it could mean add, uh, it could mean like add social workers. It could mean lots of different things. Uh, but for m- many of the people, it doesn't mean literally no police budget and no, you know, something like that. But like I, I have to, you know, I feel like that's something I learned better of a of a way to say what do you mean,
1: <laughs> um,
0: and and it's like okay, I just I just okay, they can you can use your slogan fine, uh, but if I'm in a dialogue, but if we're if it's actually a conversation or if actually I want to learn something from you, I need to say okay, sh- sh- uh, before I just react, uh, you tell me what you mean. Yeah. Um, And the the new one, actually, that's getting play all over that I'm more than happy to talk about is Christian nationalism. Uh, And Christian nationalism, it just is a way to say anytime anyone sees Christianity near something American, Christian nationalism. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, you know, look, I mean, I'm. I'm, I'm a, you know, I've never voted in my life. Um, I have very peculiar positions about politics. I would love, you know, I, I am very uh, worried about Christian involvement, like, o- like overtly directly Christian involvement in politics. But I had, I listened to a conversation, uh, sort of a shout out to another podcast called the London Lyceum, where I listened to a bunch of people talk about uh, various ways that Christians engage in politics. And I was like, oh Yeah. I have to be reminded there are a lot of really nuanced and important ways to think about this that aren't just a boogeyman that aren't just the like, uh, you know, again, I'm suspicious mostly of, of like things that I'm worried are a little too wedded between, uh, uh, between like sort of, you know, American, a love of America, American fervor. Um, and like the only way to be American is Christian. If that's what that means or something. Right. Um, but but, like, that doesn't mean there isn't really – there aren't really intelligent people who have really smart ways to think about – like, no, it's – you know, there are ways to be a Christian and be involved in politics and for those to mutually inform one another.
1: hmm And, yeah. and the the not automatic – oh, sorry.
2: The I- slogany way of arguing is bad if your goal is to change people's minds, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, the defund the police phrase, just as an example – That was one that struck a chord with a lot of people. So the benefit is for those for whom it struck a chord are gonna be on board and they're not gonna be thinking about what it means, of course. So they might actually be disappointed when they realize that, oh, there's still police forces still being paid, still being budgeted, but it's going to really uh, infuriate a, a whole different side. So is your goal to bring about a serious difference in society? ideally you would not want to infuriate those who are already inclined to disagree with you. Right. And then, and of course, it doesn't matter where you end up on a political spectrum. Everybody does this. Right. I mean, uh, you know, I always the, just default to Trevor to bring up what you just said about socialists. Like if you're on the right, everybody you disagree with is a communist or a socialist. <laughs> right. And, and yeah. I mean, we're talking, you're Stalin, your are Mao, you're Lenin you name it. And for the left, everybody you disagree with is a Nazi, right? I mean, that's, it all defaults. And then you, you try to push back a little bit and people will say, Hey, but Hitler was a nationalist. Hitler was (laughs) patriotic." Hey, (laughs) Uh you know what I mean? You just start bringing up ways in which this is, in which there is like, again, going back to a Venn diagram, there's a Venn diagram that encapsulates certain aspects of of, of Nazi belief with people on the right in America. And there's a Venn diagram that, that encapsulates certain parts of Stalin's beliefs with people on the left, but that doesn't mean they're the same thing. And and it's like, I mean, guys, let's face it. If everybody would just listen to us, we would solve the current problem in America <laughs> of our complete and utter hatred for one another and, and constant uh, polarization. But I mean, we just, at the end of the day, You actually do need to define your terms and you actually do need to be charitable to your opponent, listening to what they're saying. And yes, even the ones that you in your mind think are Nazis or are communists, because they're probably not, first of all. And second of all, because, you know, well, okay, there's more than two reasons. I, I just there's like a thousand reasons to do this. But if you want to affect change, that's what's going to have to happen, because we actually have to kind of agree on things. To make differences, anyway. Sorry. Go ahead, Trevor. You were about to say something.
1: I was just going to make a joke, and I already forgot what the joke was, so it's okay. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I mean, yeah, but in like epistemically, just social epistemology is a hot field right now. But if you're thinking of a society that's trying to share truths effectively with other members of society, we're all in bubbles. You know, we can't help that. Uh, We we all just sheerly through the practical nature by which we get testimonial evidence about the way the world is are automatically going to be in a bubble because you can only listen to so much testimony what gets you in a chamber is when you're told to actively distrust everyone outside any one of your bubbles and the only and I by the way I'm just repeating philosopher Tai Nguyen's really good piece on this which he actually has like a public facing piece that's like in a some like some actual publication like that's not philosophy journal. You can go read. But when he talks about this issue, uh, he explicitly says, look, what's the solution? And he goes, if you think it's like independent thinking, that's not going to work because guess what? That can just get you deeper in your hole that you're already in because then you're going to like basically Descartes yourself kind of, but uh, with your own little conspiracy theory. The only way, at least that he suggests that, I, I think this is plausible too, is he says, assuming goodwill on the other side that's it if you just assume that they're not out there to like harm you and kill you and you're just like actually like willing to listen to them they're not out here to destroy your way of life or whatever um just assuming some semblance of goodwill of the other side is typically what it takes and he's got example after example that's how people often leave cults they just actually finally start to assume goodwill of the people outside the cult okay this person doesn't seem to want to like actually hurt me and then that's how they escape. Um, and so I, I don't know. It seems like sort of epistemically as a society, yeah, we need like some humility. We need like maybe some techniques, like asking people to define their terms, but yeah, we also gotta we need to assume more goodwill of our of our neighbors.
0: So uh we're we're really far afield from Chalcedon. We are
1: kind of <laughs> mean... well it's
2: we the definitions, it's the definition. Of chalcedon definitions, we're on
1: definition. it, it actually works too. Because maybe if they had assumed goodwill of each, other, no, I'm just kidding, <laughs> <I
0: don't know. laughs> that's kind of going to be my question. But well, to some extent, I actually, I think we're being you know, this is, this is what makes this would make for a good class on trying to explain why the terms. Uh, you know, how, how do I get into how, you know, like I, when I try to teach students about history, you know, it's like, okay, how do I get in the mindset of the people of that period? And you're always going to be making correspondences to the present day, not because, you know, it's the same conversation, but in the same way that we react and get inflamed. And so I do think that, that there is a correspondence here uh, between these two eras uh precisely in the ways that you all are saying it's like okay there's a bunch, you know cyril is proposing uh to, to stick with theot theot theotokos and nestorius is doing this other one so you hear theotokos or you hear out of two natures and you say oh that's my team uh or you hear in two natures you hear the other one oh that's my team um and you know and there's that that sloganeering but um Okay, but 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 just an interesting question that I have. Um, James K. A. Smith uh, is a sort of a famous sort of philosopher theologian. Uh, he wrote a piece a year or two ago about how he was done trying to art like to, to. He says that he doesn't think. People change their position by their by rationality, by argumentation. Um, And he says he he says essentially, I think Peter Berger does this. But you talk about uh, plausibility structures and what seems plausible to someone, um, and how do you move someone from one plausibility to another, one plausibility structure to another plausibility structure? So, in the case of defund the police, if how would you how would you get them to move to a position where they thought uh, you know, police were, you know, you needed more police or something or I don't know that the, the police force wasn't out to just hurt people of color. Uh, how would you move them? Well, you're not going to argue them uh, because their plausibility structure already is set up in such a way that the only thing that seems plausible is that the police just hate uh, people of color or something. So the ar- so james k smith argues that it's that it's love that it's relationships and it sounds a little willy it sounds a little like feel good or something but he says you can only change someone by spending time with them and sort of by by how you embrace them in kind of like a relational manner so he made this kind of big declaration that he was like done with philosophy is what he said uh, because he said we don't need the arguments uh, what we need is uh you know something else i'm not sure how convi- like it it was sort of an interesting proposal because like you know there there's something about that where it's like the longer i spend um well i mean i spend all my time around catholic people and uh it's a very common thing for protestants like me to convert uh, <laughs> who spend all their time around c- c- catholic people um, and like I love, you know, it's like I see how that happens. The more time that I spend with them, I'm like, I under I can actually give you a fairly coherent account of why Catholics believe what they believe. I totally understand the Catholic plausibility structure at this point. Like I can give you a really good account of why that's compelling in a way that I could never have done uh, the way that I was raised. Uh, because I just spend all my time um, in, in one Catholic setting or another. Um, and now, you know, it's a whole other question as to why I'm not Catholic. But but we'll just take that point for a minute. It's like I can inhabit uh, a mindset of a Catholic person in a way that I could never have uh, imagined uh, 10, 20 years ago.
1: Yeah, well, to me, that's still just his philosophy. I mean... If you're doing it right, even if you're, even if you have a view, like I have a view, like I'm doing this right now, I have a view on the nature of hope. It, it disagrees with like one of the main authors who pretty much everyone looks up to on, on the topic of hope, but I could explain that pretty dang well, and that, and you know, probably better than. Um, many people, uh, even in philosophy, because most people don't work on hope. Uh, (laughs) Why? Well, because that's what you got to do. You got to understand why something seems plausible. In fact, this is like a criterion often in philosophy. If you just sit and make a view look really dumb, sometimes it's just like, well, maybe the view really just was dumb. But often it's like, but then there's always like a section in the paper that's like, but then why did it sound convincing? Why would we think this? Like, what about it sounds good? Why? Why on earth would anyone think that this was more plausible than not? And that is exactly what you're trying to do. This is exactly what you're trying to explain. And if if you can't, if you can't even inhabit that frame of mind as to why your opponent would think it's plausible, you can't argue effectively against it at all. Because what you're going to do is strawman them. That's all you're going to yeah. do. You're going to point at the weakest sounding things and destroy them. But then you're not going to capture anything about their view uh, that actually needs defeating if you're going to, you know, defeat it in argumentative style. So, yeah, it's to me that I don't know that proposal to me. It's like, OK, so still just philosophy. That's how that sounds to
2: me. <laughs> well, and, I mean, not to go all Aristotelian on you guys, but Aristotle in his rhetoric identifies three modes of persuasion. Right. Right. Ethos, pathos, and logos, and I don't know if there's more to it than that, but I like that breakdown where he basically says, "Look, in general, if you're going to persuade somebody to anything, there are going to be these three ways to do it. Part of it is going to be reason, but part of it, and he, I correct, I might be wrong. One of you guys can maybe when he has a better recollection. I think he says this is the most important one is ethos, which is basically more or less do people does the person you're arguing with like you." Because if they don't like you, it doesn't matter what you say. doesn't matter what reason you give. You're not persuading anybody, right? Um, and and I, I actually illustrated this for my students years ago when Barack Obama was still president. Because I, te- you know, I teach at a very conservative school. And uh, everybody at my school hated Barack Obama back then. And I would show them a clip of Barack Obama at, um, well, I'd ask them a question. I'd ask them a series of questions. Like, what do you think about the president? What are you like? You know, and there was always, everything was negative. I I forget what all their answers, you know, what the questions I asked were, but I then showed them a clip from the white house correspondence dinner where the presidents traditionally roast themselves kind of, you know, and it's kind of funny and they often call themselves out on things that the opposing political party, uh, calls them out on. And he did that. And then afterwards, I asked them, how do you feel about him now? And the likability thing went up for all of them, right? Like, like just the fact that he made fun of himself and seemed a little bit more normal. All that went up. It was a it was just an I did this in my rhetoric class as an experiment in ethos. I did the same thing showing them George W. Bush, who also did the White House uh, correspondence Dinner. Now they already And and it was somewhat effective because Bush, even for conservatives, was a little unpopular towards the end of his presidency. Mm -hmm. But but I just showed them that as a way of like improving your ethos. Um, And then I just pointed out, look, it doesn't matter. Like I can envision Barack Obama walking into the Republican National Convention and giving the most straightforwardly consistent, clear argument, even for things that they agree with. And they're going to disagree with him because it's Barack Obama. And conversely, you put Donald Trump in the Democratic National Convention. It doesn't it, like and you, we've seen this, like Trump had policies that Democrats would traditionally agree with. And he made decisions that Democrats would like. And even those you would see kind of stated in such a way to make him look bad. Right. Like it doesn't matter what he says. He's Donald Trump and therefore he's bad. And and now I'm just doing that at this one level. But at a personal level, the most important thing I think Aristotle would say, to trying to persuade people is you've got to connect with them. Like you have to, there has to be that likability or else they won't even listen to you, right? And that's another thing that we're losing in our culture because people are proactively saying, no, I will not tolerate having a relationship with people on the other side. I mean, I see it every day on Twitter. I saw, this was a few weeks ago, but I saw a woman post a tweet And this was, for me, it was so sad because I know so many people going through this kind of thing. And she said, y'all aren't serious about fighting racism if you're not cutting relationships off with your family members. She goes, I'm down to two. I will talk to nobody, but two people in my family. And I'm like, look, like God created us with families. I think partly as a built-in system of having to fight with people. (laughs) Like you just have to have them. You don't cut them out, right? To cut family members out, then there's almost no hope for us, like because that's the one thing that traditionally has been there. You know, you you have to talk to grumpy old Uncle Bill, and you have to listen to him. And deep down, you kind of love him, even though you don't agree with him. But now we've hit this this cultural moray where we we actually feel a moral burden to cut. You know, Uncle. You know, grumpy old Uncle Bill out of our lives. We can't yeah. listen to him. We can't right. ever talk to him again. And and the more that happens, the worse this is going to be. And then, of course, you throw in on our online discourse. Well, when we're online, we have no reason to love the people that we're arguing right. with. Like I mean, all they're not even people. So even like in the way that we talk talk to them, we don't even perceive them as human beings. They're just uh, they're just these avatars on a screen saying things that infuriate us and yeah. so we just respond without any connection at all so i yeah i, th- I mean i think it's really uh, i think it's
0: quite true um and i you know my i'm very fortunate i have a big family we spend a lot of time with our extended family but i just think about like to some extent The seeds of that were sown long ago when I mean, you know, it is only a sort of a modern American phenomena to think of the family as a like sort of your immediate nuclear uh, two parents and the children family. Um, So to some extent, living with fuller families required even more uh, of what you're talking about, because you might only see crazy Uncle Bill uh uh you know or I can't remember what your uncle was uncle Bill's actually Bill's my I think I said Bill.
2: I think it's a crazy oh, did you? Bill.
0: Okay, yeah, because in my head now I'm starting to ping and I'm thinking Uncle Bill, our chef brother-in-law. Um uh, oh. and he he's he uh Uncle Bill and I actually slaughtered some chickens this uh uh it was kind of funny like uh so he's a little he is a you know, you get a little crazy when you're with Uncle Bill. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you only if you know, if you only see him once a year at Thanksgiving or something like it's still not the same thing. It's like living with family members in larger groups like the atomized world that we live in. It, you know, is not something that just happened in the last five or 10 years. Um, it, To some extent, it's been the American dream of when you're 18, you leave your parents house, uh, which is such a weird and sad thing to think about. Uh, but we have been, well, and I love, I'm going to, I'm going to, well, I, 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 so I love reading, uh, about the history of, and like farming memoirs. Um, this is a weird thing, but lately, um, I, uh, Like, I'm really drawn to farm life lately. Um, And so I'm reading I'm reading memoirs. But one of the things there was this really interesting one about the history of farming in Wisconsin. And they talked about how what technology did to farming was made it more individual. And so with every Uh, In it with each each move from, you know, first, you know, they used to farm with cattle, uh, with with the oxen and you'd yoke the oxen and you'd work the fields that way. Um, And then you got a tractor. Uh, So then you were distanced from the animals. You weren't working with the animals, but they also talk about combines. And so the tractor combine was like the next big revolution in farming. But what used to happen before the, with either the animals or even the, the, the sort of simple tractor uh, was communities had to get together uh, to gather the hay, to bale the hay, to put the hay in the hayloft. And all of these things were communal moments. Um, and with every successive uh, technological revolution in farming, uh, every farmer... Became well to some extent, you needed fewer and fewer farmers, um, but you also slowly broke down the the, community, the ties that bound one farmer to the next. Um, and, and so, you know, and, and basically over the last hundred years, we've made it so that 99% or, you know, some absurd number, 98% of Americans don't live on working farms, um, because we don't have to, because of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and to some, you know, and, and I, I love Wendell Berry and this is kind of a Wendell Berry point too. I was uh, just
2: about to say, I read an essay that Wendell Berry wrote, but I can't remember the name of it a couple years ago. And he hit on this exact point.
0: Yeah, so the unsettling of America is the one that I love. It's a long, a long collection of essays, and I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm totally, like, I'm totally persuaded by it. At the same, at the same time that I'm now doing a podcast where I look at you all uh, via screen, uh, so <laughs> I, I have connections that I couldn't possibly have otherwise, and I run a podcast and all these things. Uh, yeah, uh, all it wouldn't take much, and uh, Abby and I would be on a farm. Uh, but we'll see.
1: <laughs> that's so funny because there's a very popular video game right now called Stardew Valley, where the point, the plot of the game, is that it's a very open world sort of. There's not a linear story, and it's a someone who works at a company that's basically Amazon. They don't call it Amazon, who quits their job at Amazon and goes and lives on a farm, and people <laughs> people are drawn to this game, and I. I cannot help but think there's like a psychological factor that you share with those those people. Um, some of those people being my my wife included. Meredith plays so much Stardew Valley is not even funny, and it's <laughs> ironic. And she gets it. She's like, I I see the irony here that I'm like working on a virtual farm, but I got to tend to my farm. And she's like, I gotta <laughs> collect my stuff. I got. I'm just like, wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and I dabble. I mean, yeah, we're we're far afield, but I dabble in it every year. I mean, our garden grows. We're almost a hundred, what, a hundred square feet of of uh, garden plot in our uh, little small single family in the city of St. Louis. We have chickens. Uh, my sister just got ducks. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> like. You know, I mean, it just it gets worse every year, and every time I I di- I get a little further into it, I'm like, man, I could really use some goats, uh, or I, I <laughs> uh, you know, I just I I don't know, I love it, uh, but. Maybe I love it because it's a hobby and my life doesn't depend on it. Actually, I'm fully convinced that that's the case. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Our zucchinis were terrible this year, and it's like, oh well, we'll just go buy them at the store.
2: Or uh-huh. uh- <laughs> do what I do: don't eat them.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah, there is like a whole connection to food thing too, which is which is fun. Whenever I get uh, food from like friends' gardens and I cook with it, I'm like, I know who made this. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah.